0: Välkommen till Amtejante-podden. Programleder är er Mira Mecklen och av boken Du ska lide för felskapen. Teknisk ansvarig är er Frode Bårdal Klebström.
1: Today we have with oss James Corbett, who is a investigative and independent journalist, and you have your own platform, CorbettReport.com, where you have published material since 2007. Thank you so much for being on anti Antipoden.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: We really appreciate because you've been investigating really deeply into the power structures of the world. And I think for the past two years, people have been very shocked by their own governments. And they have looked across the borders and seen that it's very coordinated. And many people start to wonder, what is happening? why is it so coordinated? And many people ask, like, they blame it on technocrats, globalists, Agenda 2030, Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab. Well, you have studied this in depth for years. Could you please enlighten us uh, what is going on?
2: Yes, I can. And thank you for asking this question, because it's incredibly important for people to understand that what is happening right now is not something that just happened spontaneously. It was not just something that came out of the blue that no one was prepared for and that none of what we are living through today was foreseen or prepared in advance. On the contrary, every single aspect of what is happening right now was already uh, on the table, so to speak, was already prepared and ready to go before this crisis even began. And I can say that with authority and from experience because I've been talking about the preparation for the what I call the biosecurity state, which is, I think, all of the restrictions and international coordination of biosecurity that is going on right now. All of that was laid out and prepared uh, decades ago, and I have specifically talked about it in the past. For example, I always point to a 2009 podcast that I did on the subject of medical martial law. And I remember at the time that I put that podcast out, there were still very few people who even understood what that term meant. And to the extent that they did understand what medical martial law meant, they still couldn't believe that it would ever actually happen. And now we are seeing in country after country after country all sorts of questions. vaccine passes, and quarantines, and restrictions on travel and movement, people being prohibited from shopping in certain places, or buying certain items, or leaving a certain distance from their home, or all of these things that would have been unimaginable to most people a couple of years ago, were things that I was already talking about over a decade ago. And I certainly wasn't the only one. I'm not saying that I was particularly foresightful here. It's just that this is an agenda that has been laid out in black and white. So we can look at all sorts of examples of um, biosecurity as a concept being laid out at least since the time of the anthrax attacks in the United States in 2001. People obviously will remember the attacks of September 11th, 2001. They are less likely to remember the anthrax attacks that were a follow-up or seemed to be some sort of follow-up to the 9-11 events because they, uh, the investigative trail of the anthrax did not lead to al-Qaeda or, or the Iraqi government, as was originally being f- uh, floated, but back to the U.S. and U.S. military uh, bioweapons labs. So that investigation was quite quickly, uh, shall we say, shoved to the side. And um, it did have an interesting denouement, which I've covered before. But long story short... In the wake of that crisis we started to see the emergence of this biosecurity state in the united states and also internationally and in the united states there was for example something called the model state emergency health powers act which was this model legislation that was drafted that was passed subsequently passed in state after state after state around the u.s that allows governors to forcibly quarantine and even force vaccinate their populations in the event of a declared public health emergency. But on the international scale, we had the World Health Organization adopting something called the International Health Regulations in 2005, which obligated all WHO member nations, and there are 196 member nations of the World Health Organization, so basically the entire world, uh, it obligated those nations to recognize something called a Public Health Emergency of International Concern, a P-H-E-I-C, which is a type of declaration that the WHO, under these international health regulations, is allowed to make, which, in the event of that, uh, allows all sorts of things to happen on an international scale, up to and including actually allowing organizations like NATO to, leeway to enter countries in the interest of controlling an outbreak now we haven't obviously seen quite that level yet but we have seen this pheic public health emergency of international concern we've seen that brought up a few times now in the intervening 15 years since these international health regulations were first passed firstly in 2009 during the swine flu crisis people might remember there was a huge swine flu scare in 2009 and we were being told this is a public health emergency of international concern they actually pulled that trigger and what that did was mandate uh, member nations governments around the world to start stockpiling things like tamiflu and other uh, pharmaceutical products in order to combat this deadly scourge of swine flu now in the end as it turned out the flu season of 2009 was actually less deadly than an average flu season and if there was as some sort of deadly international pandemic yeah, well it seemed to have missed everyone because it turned out to not have been the emergency that they claimed it was and in a subsequent investigation the uh european union council the council of europe uh put out a report Uh, detailing how the members of the advisory panel, which was advising the World Health Organization on its ability to declare that P-H-E-I-C for swine flu, had conflicts of interest. They were sitting on the boards of pharmaceutical companies that directly benefited from that declaration. So there was an obvious and blatant conflict of interest that they were trying to ring the alarm, alarm bell of this. There was people like Wolfgang Wodarg who... People might know from recent years in the the current uh, crisis uh, has been talking about this since 2010 when they were first looking into this in the WHO saying there is a conflict of interest here. This was a a scam at a certain level was taking place. Other aspects of that scam included the World Health Organization changing its definition of an international pandemic uh, emergency it, just months before they they then declared it in the swine flu crisis. If you go to the, uh, the archived page of the World Health Organization definition of a flu pandemic, uh, it originally included a stipulation that there must be massive amounts of death in order to declare a international pandemic. But that that wording was removed so it was simply a flu that is spreading in multiple countries was really the only criteria which was the criteria they used to declare the international pandemic in 2009. Uh, we saw other iterations of this PHEIC and some of the uh, international health regulations being enacted for example in 2000 i believe it was 2014 was the uh, ebola crisis uh, and then 2016 the zika crisis we've seen variations on this type of uh, international declaration of some sort of international emergency that requires coordinated international action, but obviously we didn't see anything like what happened in early 2020 when they pulled the trigger on COVID-19 and declared a PHEIC for that. And so we've seen how it has unfolded, but as I say, there is a long paper trail of information on the concept of biosecurity, what it means, and what governments around the world will be obligated to do simply by being members of the World Health Organization. And then when you factor in, well, who is the World Health Organization? And who is really calling the shots with this organization? Where does it get its funding? It turns out that the second largest donor, and this is 2020 information, I do not know the 2021 information, but as of 2020, the second largest donor to the WHO was not a nation state, It was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, That, I think, goes to show the type of incredible influence that certain very select private interests can have in swaying international response to this international health crisis. And that, I think, gives a flavor of how things have developed and, and why they have seemed to be coordinated at this international level. It's because they are being coordinated at an international level.
1: Mm, but why do they want this uh, biosecurity state? Uh, like, what, what, what would that benefit their agenda in any way?
2: Well, uh, you, you can take it directly from their own documents. For example, I did a piece on uh, COVID 911 a couple of years ago where I cited a number of the papers that were uh, documenting the rise of this biosecurity field. Um, For example, there was a a 2002 paper in a bioscience journal. They were talking about how, uh, quote, the events of September 11th and subsequent anthrax assaults have made U.S. policymakers and the public more aware of our vulnerability to organisms released with the intent to cause significant harm. And they went on to advocate uh, the formation of something, I think, parallel to the homeland security state, the terrorist security state, in the bio... Uh, the biological field, to protect against such threats. So in 2010, the World Health Organization followed up with its own information note on biosecurity, where they said, quote, The overarching goal of biosecurity is to prevent, control, and or manage risks to life and health. And then, echoing the post-9-11 declarations about the need for global cooperation in the war on terror, they said that this goal this biosecurity goal could only be reached through quote a harmonized and integrated biosecurity approach based on international standards so we start to see the flavor of this this is about prevention control and managing of risks to life which automatically entails certain restrictions on our ability to in to to travel to transact to interact with other human beings who may be As we have seen over the past couple of years, this idea of the asymptomatic spreader has come into the public consciousness, and that idea is uh, in and of itself a way of essentially controlling a population at the most fundamental level. And we don't, again, we don't have to use our imaginations to see this. We can look at place after place around the world, like in Australia, for example, um, where there have been various declarations that you cannot go with more than five kilometers from your home without valid reason and approval from the government and other such restrictions on travel and movement. Now, of course, we can take this simply and 100% at face value. The World Health Organization and other international health bodies are recommending these policies and the nation-state governments are implementing these policies solely and 100% because they are concerned about the spreading risk of this potential pathogen and what it could do to uh, to health. But I situate what is happening at this point in 2020 2021 2022 in the context of the reporting that i was doing in 2019 of protest after protest after protest movements all around the world from the yellow vests in france to uh riots and 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 mass demonstrations taking on this taking place on the streets in latin america uprisings happening in hong kong all over the globe, there were uh, incredible amounts of, uh, of public pushback to collapsing regimes and failed states in various forms. People realizing that the, for example, the financial collapse of 2008 was still ongoing and was still filtering down to the bottom levels of society where people are feeling economic pain. And I, I think it, it is no coincidence in my view that what we are seeing now with this institution of incredibly strict, top-down controls of a very few people getting to dictate the movements and transactions and interactions and livelihoods of the vast majority of citizens based on the say-so of some unelected technocrats is not a coincidence. This is, I think, part of a coordinated f- political strategy to ensure uh, the control of the many by a very, very few. And... uh, More importantly than just instituting the control itself, is instituting in the minds of those being controlled that there is a good reason for this. This is for your own safety. It's for your own good. So that, precisely so that there will be less resistance. And as we're recording this just in the last few days, it seems finally in Canada... People are starting to actually stand up and and say, we will not put up with this anymore. And we're starting to see some of that resurgence of the spirit we were seeing in 2019 taking place, for example, in this trucker convoy that's happening in Canada that's threatening to shut down border crossings and the, uh, the capital in Ottawa and other places. Uh, we're starting to see a resurgence of that spirit. But I think that uh, putting the lid on that type of political activity was precisely the point of what we've seen over the past couple of years.
1: And Canada is your country of origin. Now you live in Japan, but uh, since it's your country of origin, do you know a lot about uh, convoy? And I heard it's like 50,000 trucks, isn't it?
2: Uh, I've heard estimates of that, yes. I cannot confirm any of that, obviously, because I am in Japan. So I'm not in Canada, but I've heard from many people in Canada who ha- have been there and have said that the, uh, the actual lived experience on the ground of people coming out to see these convoys, the convoy passing, has been absolutely electrifying and unlike anything that they've experienced before. And for example, I had someone in the comment section of my website who uh, lives in a town of about 4,000 people. As the convoy was passing, he said there was about 1,000 people, about a quarter of the entire town had come out to see this convoy and cheer them on. And it certainly seems like there is a, uh, a mass movement that is happening right now um as i say i think this is a natural extension of some of the uh the tensions that were there in 2019 that uh, have finally boiled over after they tried to put the lid on that pot and i i see that as a hopeful sign that they have not managed to crush all resistance um to top-down technocratic management of society because if And regardless of whatever you believe about the last two years and what has happened and what it's really been about, I think this has been the perfect demonstration of the danger of putting the economy, let alone people's lives, in the hands of a small managerial technocratic class that, at the very best, the most charitable reading that you could give for the last couple of years is that these were incompetent boobs who just do not understand what they are doing and do not understand what's happening and cannot a- properly manage uh, the the population in general. Um, I-, I have a less charitable reading because, as I say, I think there are people who are actually actively interested in and invested in trying to suppress uh, political activity over the past couple of years. This This hasn't been a bunch of incompetence wandering stumbling around from policy to policy no the point has always been i think to wire in the biosecurity state with the vaccine passports which if we want to look long term are of course not going to they these this is the technological infrastructure that is being laid right now for a much much more decronian system of control that will be coming into place in the coming years that will be based around uh, central bank-issued digital currencies, the health passports that people are now being, in various locales, mandated to carry around with them, It usually in the form of some sort of smartphone app, um, can and will eventually be merged into a government-issued digital identity that will be tied to a government-issued or central bank-issued digital wallet, which will allow people to uh, to put their... Uh, their uh, transactions essentially directly through the, uh, the central banks themselves. And uh, every single transaction that is made will be directly middlemaned by the government in such a system. Uh, again, I don't have to go out on a limb to speculate about this. We had Augustin Karstens, the di- executive director of the Bank for International Settlements, which is the central bank of c- central banks in Basel, Switzerland, actively coming out and saying uh i believe about a year ago in a live stream that was being recorded under the auspices of the imf he was talking about this and i would wholeheartedly suggest if your listeners have not heard this speech that they look it up augustin karstens speaking at an imf uh live stream talking about the type of control that will be possible when central bank digital currencies are issued, uh, so that central bank will be able to control and allow or disallow every single transaction happening in the economy in real time. They will be able to set whatever limits they want on your ability to use your quote-unquote money, Um, including, of course, if, for example, the government decrees you are not allowed to leave more than five kilometers away from your home because of whatever emergency they've declared they will literally be able to turn off your ability to use your quote-unquote money in your central bank digital currency wallet uh, if you are if you if your gps detects that you're further than five kilometers from your home it is the perfect system of control that is being implemented right now under the cover of this health emergency and i think people are starting to get a sense of where this could be going because of course now more and more people are finding that they are being locked out of the ability to use and access everyday services and even enter shops, etc., if they are not, quote-unquote, fully vaccinated, which uh, at one point seemed to mean two injections and suddenly is three and in Israel is four and they might be going for five soon. Uh, It is becoming, I think, more and more evident where we are heading with all of this and it is not simply about trying to control a virus.
1: Mm, And many people are talking about technocrats and globalists. Uh, Is that a type of ideology or like, what is it?
2: That's an excellent question. Uh, Technocracy actually is a, uh, uh, it, it is an ideology, but it actually was, and I think it still is to this day, a membership organization that was founded and really got launched in the early 1930s under the auspices of Howard Scott and M. King Hubbard, who were... Well, Howard Scott was a bit of a charlatan who padded his resume and managed to talk his way into some space in the basement of Columbia University, where he started um, this movement. Um, Eventually got kicked out of Columbia University, but continued on with Technocracy, Inc., which is a movement based around an idea... That was formulated in some a, a guiding document that was written by M. King Hubbard in the 1930s. M. King Hubbard should be familiar to people. For example, Hubbard's Peak, also known as Peak Oil, um, was a theory that was propounded by M. King Hubbard, who was a, a petroleum geologist for, I believe, Shell Corporation at the time that he forwarded his Peak Oil idea. At any rate, he was... He was a genuinely a scientist who did think about these things and put together a document that I talked about in a documentary that I made called How and Why Big Oil Conquered the World. That's available for free viewing at corporatereport.com slash big oil if people want more in-depth on this. But uh, in that document, um, uh, Hubbard was talking about uh, the technocratic system of the future, the, a form of governance in which uh, essentially society would be ruled over by social engineers and scientists and economists and people with technical knowledge would be able to steward over society for, for, of course, for everyone's best interest. And the way they would do this is by perfectly managing energy inputs and outputs in the economy. And if that is perfectly balanced so that the amount of energy that is being produced is exactly equivalent to the amount of energy that is required for all goods and services in the economy, Maybe a little bit more to uh, account for some room for expansion and inflation, but in that way we could c- essentially control the economy and thus human productivity and thus the population itself. And uh, that was a truly insane idea, really, to be forwarding in the 1930s because what it what it implied, what it entailed, would be the ability to track every. Single transaction happening in the economy, including, of course, the energy inputs and outputs to that transaction. So, if you buy something at the uh, at the grocery store, or if you buy a, a piece of furniture, or if you buy uh, whatever it is, a, t- a gallon of gasoline, it, it would uh, that would have to be calculated. So, that, okay, what were the energy inputs into the creation of that? sofa that you just purchased. Uh, it, it, it was absolutely insane to be even thinking those terms in the 1930s. Fast forward to 2022, well, that's that's probably doable at this point. Everything is being digitally tracked, at, at and if we had, say, a central system in which, say, a central bank would have uh, the ability to monitor every transaction that's happening in real time and databasing that that knowledge. And, well, we could have a system where the technocrats, the engineers, the scientists could steward over this system whereby they'd be able to decide, okay, well, we have this much energy, people are, are spending this much, we need this much energy uh, output, so we'll we'll balance it with this much energy input. Eventually, the idea was to start uh, shifting away from the money paradigm that we operate in today towards an energy credit paradigm where every citizen of the technate, that was what they were calling the nation-states of the future, they're not nation-states, they're technates go- go- governed over by a techno technocratic government, uh, would issue each citizen an energy credit. And you have this many energy credits to spend this month, and you can spend them. And so the uh, the products would not be measured in, in dollars or euros or yen. They would be measured in kilojoules or joules or units of energy. How many units of energy did it take to produce this product? Okay, well, I have this many credits, so I'll be able to spend it. And if you run out of energy credits for the month, well, too bad. You're just going to have to wait till you get your next stipend next month, citizen. Um, that, was the, that was the idea. And again, that sounded, I mean, that was a crazy idea in the 1930s. Now that we are here in 2022, we can see that taking shape. And I, I believe, and this is where, you know, it's purely speculation, but I believe there is a reason that country after country is calling their version of the health pass a green pass because i think we are being conditioned that in the very near future we are going to have carbon credit allowances we are going to well you are you have a carbon footprint that is contributing to climate change so we have to regulate and limit the amount of things you purchase places you go how far you can travel etc cetera, etc cetera, to limit your carbon footprint so it's not exactly like measuring each product that you purchase in joules of energy but when we put this carbon price, quote-unquote, on everything that we consume, then we start to enter into that paradigm of what the technocrats were laying out in the 1930s. Now, Technocracy, Inc., and that movement, etc., it was very popular in the 1930s when uh, there was obviously huge amounts of chaos, upheaval, uh, Great Depression, all sorts of things going on in society, uh, but... Then again, in the 1930s, the Communist Party was a thing in the United States. There were all sorts of ideas that were being bandied about that were not politically feasible at other times. Technocracy was one of them. So that movement really uh, gained its peak and then faded away, shall we say, in the the subsequent decades. As I say, I believe technocracy is still around, but it is obviously just a shadow of its former self. But the idea underpinning it, that society should be strictly managed and controlled by a few elite is, I think, the ideology of the people who are uh, looking over this process right now. And that would include, of course, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which, as I say, was the second, second largest donor to the World Health Organization and clearly has an incredible amount of influence on the public health space. Uh, right now they've just appointed three I believe three or four new board members to the board of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation one of whom is a self-declared self-professed technocrat who talks about yes I yes I, I'm a technocrat and uh, you know we're gonna make this work so uh, this isn't It isn't crazy to to connect these dots. In fact, I think when you actually look at the history and what's being propounded, it's quite straightforward. And although there is a movement and an actual organization underlying this, I think it's more about the ideology itself, which just happens to be a very convenient ideology. If you happen to be in a position of power and control and want to steward over society, this gives you the perfect excuse essentially to do that with some fig leaf of justification that most people will be happy with well don't worry the scientists and engineers are carefully looking at everything to determine what's best for society so we can leave it to them which seems a pretty convenient justification for people who want power over others
1: but are they then throwing out the nation states and are our state leaders ready to outsource all the power or how would it happen
2: I think there are a number of different ways that it can play out, so I I can't definitively say how it will happen. But I think the idea of the nation state itself is clearly something that uh, is uh, uh, what should we say outre in the um, in the uh, uh, class of people who gather, for example, at Davos every year. Um, th- those types of people are not, I think, wedded to the nation state structure, and I don't think are. Necessarily beholden to their nation state. Some of them may be, and I'm not going to sit here and psychologize people one by one. I don't know. But I, I certainly see less fealty or allegiance to the nation state system amongst the billionaire or trillionaire class than among the general population. And uh, that's reflected in all sorts of things. But again, you can take this from any number of statements directly from the horse's mouth. I think one of the most infamous of um, recent decades was in David Rockefeller's memoirs where uh, towards the end of his memoirs uh, I, I can't remember the page number off the top of my head I believe it was 410 but don't quote me on that well. <laughs> at, at any rate he does say uh, he does say if if uh, my family stands accused of being uh, part of a conspiracy to try to bring about a global government and if that is the charge then I am guilty and proud of it uh, again these People, I, d- I don't think, are even ashamed of the fact that no, of course, they do not envision a world uh, governed necessarily by nation-state structures in the future. Or, if so, if if nation-state, uh, the the nation-state idea is useful for rallying people around. People like to rally around the flag and feel part of something. That that might be uh, maintained, but the reality of how the international architecture of governance itself is being engineered is being engineered through these international organizations that most people don't even know exist but that as we've seen over the past couple of years have an incredibly profound ability to enact international agendas and ideas so for example we've talked about the world health organization i've mentioned the bank for international settlements again how many people how many average normal everyday people have even heard of the bank for international settlements let alone have any clue what it does who's in charge of it what what they're attempting to do or why or Add to that any number of ancillary organizations that we could think about. The Financial Stability Board and all of these sorts of organizations that you've never heard of. Who knows what the World Trade Organization is doing on a day-to-day basis or who's governing it or in what way. Those are all things, uh, I don't know, they happen behind the scenes, uh, but uh, I don't feel it in my everyday life. But in reality, the policies of nation-state after nation-state around the world are increasingly being, if not dictated, at least suggested by the white papers of organizations like this, like the Financial Stability Board, that again, most people haven't heard of.
1: Mm. But there's one organization that we heard more and more about it, and it's the World Economic Forum. And we have seen videos of Klaus Schwab saying that you will own nothing and you will be happy. And uh, many people find that to be very scary. Who is this guy?
2: That is an excellent question. And I have yet to find the definitive answer on that i've seen some people attempting to uh to put that together the the actual biography of klaus schwab still contains some question marks and some interesting things but i will direct people who are interested in at least getting started uh with this topic to a podcast that i released uh in the middle of last year called meet the world economic forum and in that i went through some of the founding documents of the world economic forum where it came from um who this professor klaus schwab really is and what his ideas entail and i think that'll that if people who are interested will benefit from a, a a deep dive like that but long story short this this organization came out of uh, ostensibly came arose in the early 1970s as a type of european management summit uh by this klaus schwab who was interested in the idea of ...organizing business and business relations internationally, um, specifically in Europe at the time... ...but obviously has since expanded to meet up with the the Appellation of World Economic Forum... ...and bringing together business leaders as well as politicians and decision makers in various fields to try to organize around certain pet projects, ideas, visions uh, that Klaus Schwab and his associates have, one of which is the idea of stakeholder capitalism, which was something that uh, was one of Klaus Schwab's early motivating interests, the idea that shareholder capitalism, the idea that a business is beholden to its shareholders, and so must try to maintain or expand the, um, the profits, the bottom line of a business, in order to uh, give dividends to shareholders. That's that's what a business is there for, and that's what it does, and that's what it's it should do. That's its mandate. It's imperative. Uh Klaus Schwab wanted to change that to stakeholder capitalism, where, yes, there are of course shareholders in a corporation, but there are stakeholders as well. As in everyone in an in a community, for example, who is affected by the operations of a business thereby has a stake in that business so people um, who for example live in an area whose natural resources maybe it has a lot of lumber or something along those lines that's being used by this corporation well you don't have a you might not have a share in that corporation an actual piece of stock but you have a stake in that corporation you have an interest in what they are doing to the lumber that is around you for example so the idea is well then Corporations have to broaden their their mandate and broaden their idea. They're not just beholden to their shareholders, they're beholden to their stakeholders. But embedded in that idea is a very technocratic idea itself. Because, oh, of course, I mean, that essentially means almost anybody has a, you could claim to have a stake in almost any major corporation, right? I mean, I yes, their business does affect me and uh, the way I live my life. So, but that's too messy. I mean, we can't have billions of people all trying to get their piece of whatever, McDonald's or whatever, and telling them what to do. No, 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 no. We need some sort of global middleman management unit that will be able to adjudicate such things and come, out with the, come up with the rules for international finance and how this should all work. I, I don't know, like uh, the World Economic Forum. <laughs> so, <laughs> for of course, in such a system, <laughs> Klaus Schwab and his associates suddenly become incredibly important linchpins of such a system. If only it ended there. But unfortunately, again, as I'm sure people have seen in the past few years, it, of course, isn't just about stakeholder capitalism or some sort of vague idea about running business. No, this is about such things as the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which was another idea that was uh, championed by Schwab. I wouldn't say he came up with it. Um, He did co-write a book uh, about it, but I I, I have a feeling that uh, his contribution to such book was... Probably closer to zero, but that's just my speculation. But anyway, um, he's certainly a, a proponent of this idea of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the idea that the the next stage of the Industrial Revolution is going to be a combination of our biological, physical, and digital identities. That's not me making that up. That is Klaus Schwab saying it. You can see him uh, being interviewed for a French television channel in 2016 saying that well within the next decade we're going to start putting brain chips in people and we're going to start being able to interface with machines directly Um, these are the types of ideas that are being bandied about now at this level and i think it's again extremely interesting when we start to look at it in its larger historical uh, context of technocracy and of what i think was an earlier iteration of the technocratic idea that the very few are fit to control the very many which is eugenics which is an incredibly important ideology pseudoscience that sprang up in the late 19th century under the idea that some people are just genetically fit to rule over others they have better genes and deserve to propagate their their kind into the future the people of the criminals and mentally incapable and poor people but they're all the same according to the eugenics ideology they don't deserve to have children they don't deserve to propagate into the future and so at the dark shadow of eugenics is dysgenics, the idea that we need to start sterilizing people and, con- and and stopping their ability to have children, etc. I think this is all part and parcel. this that was wrapped up into technocracy where again, a few the the scientists, the good people, the technocrats would be able to control the many. And that is being forwarded into the next iteration of this, which is transhumanism, which is the idea that we are going to start merging our physical identities with, with robots and, and, and uh, putting our brain chips into us and eventually uploading our consciousness to the computers and all of these ideas that sound like total science fiction craziness are genuinely being forwarded by people like Klaus Schwab who clearly do have money and power and influence to start implementing these ideas and agendas. And as you say, they do promote ideas like you will own nothing and be happy, which, to be fair, was a bit of a... Um, provocative way for them to bring attention to a an opinion piece that was written by someone who wasn't even directly employed by the World Economic Forum, Ida Alken, who uh, is, uh, I believe, Danish parliamentarian. At any rate, not not someone directly associated with the WEF. And she was attempting to raise questions about where things are going in the future. And they provocatively put that in a video with the, the provocative title of, oh, you'll own nothing and be happy, in order to get people to read it, presumably. That kind of backfired when, in 2020, that that resurfaced and became infamous. But I think that does capture something of the idea of the spirit of the eugenicist slash technocrat slash transhuman elite, or elitists to be more precise, who do feel that they can steward over humanity and are trying to lead us into a future where the public will be very extremely controlled in their ability to interact and transact with each other and that that's all for the greater good and there are many justifications that are given for that the one that we're living through right now of course is the idea of transmission of disease but in the very near future it's going to transition seamlessly into no well we need to be doing this to control carbon dioxide so because of climate change again whatever the justification for it is i think that ultimately at base it is the same thing it is the idea that a very few not just deserve but really need to rule over the many in order to control society and control the population and i mean that word control population control i mean that in every sense of course population control um does mean on one level it does mean limiting the size of the population but I think it also means literally controlling the population as in controlling their their transactions and interactions. And I think that is all being wrapped up into some sort of narrative that we are expected at our level to just accept. Well, there are some wise leaders who are stewarding over everything. Which is why I think such things as this trucker convoy that's happening in Canada is so important right now. Because it is time. It is it, it it should never have been inflated in the first place, but it is definitely time to pop this balloon of people's idea that government needs to be there to steward over us and tell us what to do to keep us safe. Clearly, whatever you believe, clearly that has not been the case over the past couple of years. We are not better off because we have been so tightly controlled by a very few who claim to uh, to be able to steward over everything. And people are starting to wake up to that reality. And Hopefully, just in time, to head off at the past, the ideas of the technocrat, eugenicist, transhumanists who want to steward us into the biosecurity state.
1: But I I find myself being very confused about where are our state leaders in all of this? Are they aware of the directions these technocrats are taking us? Uh, Because when I hear uh, Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates uh, talking, it seems like they are very sure this is the direction we are going. This is how your life is going to be. And I'm thinking, well, we also have a democratic elected leaders. Where are they? Do they believe in the same principles, the same ideology? Uh,
2: I, I think they do to the extent that they understand what's going on at all. I think they do. And that's demonstrable through some of their connections and some of the things that have, um, uh, they have been privy to. So, for example... I would suggest that people take a look at something called the World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders or Forum of Young Global Leaders, which was a, a nonprofit organization launched by Klaus Schwab, obviously in association with the World Economic Forum back in 2004 and has uh, boasted amongst its membership an incredibly large amount of people who did, amazingly enough, go on to become public leaders of various sorts, not only in government, although there are certainly many politicians who have themselves been associated with that program, um, but uh, people in other positions of influence and power at this point, including uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, David de Rothschild, uh, Daniel Crenshaw in the United States, Uh, many people have been associated with this program, um, which Clearly, again, puts them in literally in association with, say, the World Economic Forum and its its uh, agenda. Although I wouldn't. I'd like to stress, I don't think the World Economic Forum is the body that is stewarding over all of this and the only thing. I just think it's a, a good way of getting a handle on how this works. There are many other such associations and groups that most people in the population are just, again, dimly aware of that have a great degree of influence. I've talked about this in my podcast, in my work, over the years, so people who are interested can look into my examination, for example, in... United States, the Council on Foreign Relations, but in uh, in Britain, its sister organization, its uh, progenitor, was the Royal Institute for International Affairs, better known as Chatham House, which was founded uh, at the Paris uh, 1919 Peace Conference after World War I, and uh, the Council on Foreign Relations was an adjunct of that. Um, in Commonwealth countries throughout the world, there are variations on the ca- uh, that idea, the Uh, the royal institute for international affairs has branches in a number of countries that have taken on different forms Uh, there was a canadian version for example Um, and the membership of those types of organizations again tend to be uh, a who's who of business industry finance and political leaders um again all joined together in an organization that again, most people, to the extent that they even know exists, probably don't really understand what it is it's doing or what it's uh, advocating for. Um, but again, there's no there's no uh, lack of uh, uh, ability to understand or to, to to gain insight into that from public documents. Because another thing that I think people get hung up on is the idea that oh, this is conspiracy theorizing and you're just speculating about things Uh, i to the extent that it's possible i always try to sort source and cite the actual documents of these people and their organizations that they are putting out themselves because most of what we are talking about today is again part of the public record that has been publicly talked about and uh so i don't think i don't think this functions in the way that a lot of people think it does with super secret handshakes behind closed doors. I'm sure there is that to some degree, but a lot of this agenda is out in the open, and I think they do put it out in front of the public um, so that the public has a chance to agree by simply going along with it. Well, you you went along with it. We told you what was coming, and here it is. So we uh, we shouldn't act so surprised when this happens, but this is how politicians, let alone business people, let alone financiers and industrialists and other people in positions of power, can act towards a coordinated agenda that has nothing to do with the nation-state system itself. And something that I, I, I keep going back to this, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm promoting this person, but I think it is the perfect example of an admission against interest. Back in 2008, uh, David Rothkopf, who was the executive uh, director of, the, of Kissinger and Associates for some time, he's run foreignpolicy.com, he's, he's definitely in Washington Beltway circles and is a respectable, respected f- uh, foreign affairs type of uh, a thinker, someone who, who knows a lot about foreign relations and thinks deeply on the topic. He wrote a book called The Superclass, in which he said, and in his own words, he said, there are about 6,000 people in the world who are able to enact agendas across borders. And they're uh, they, they are not, we're not talking about politicians necessarily here, we're talking about people in various at- walks of life. But this superclass is able to enact an international agenda in coordination in various groups, like the world economic forum like like the Bilderberg group like any number of organizations that exist out there um to to essentially enact international agendas and this again uh, this isn't James Corbett some no name in Japan saying it this is literally part of that superclass or someone who I'm sure sees himself as part of or at least connected to that superclass talking about the existence of the superclass I think that's the that's the perfect encapsulation of this at that level it really isn't about nation states per se it's about groups of interest and shared ideology
1: and they also have a an agenda that is very much in the open and it's not a secret uh, and many people are pointing at it these days and it's called Agenda 2030. What is that?
2: Excellent question. So I, I, again, for the deep dive on this, I would suggest people um, take a look at Agenda 2030. You just type that into my search bar and you'll find some of the work that I've done on this over the years. But obviously this is a UN-led spearheaded idea um, for that is being put Under the cover of sustainable development goals, I think it's the most obvious um, manifestation of this idea in the public face. And I don't know what it's like where you're at in Japan. The sustainable development goals and the SDGs are becoming more and more and more pervasive. They are starting to work their way into advertisements. Various businesses are putting the SDGs up on, on their storefront faces and you know, citing various SDGs. What are the SDGs? Has anyone actually read the SDGs? Well, these are, again, sustainable development goals that were set by the UN and were adopted, I believe, in 2015. Um, but, and, and generally, generally speaking, if one were to glance over these SDGs, he would find the sorts of rather bland and banal sorts of statements about uh, eradicating poverty and educating children and other such things that, of course, absolutely everyone is in agreement with, certainly, right?
1: Yeah, it sounds really good. I, I worked in foreign aid for seven years, and, and I mean, clean water, I mean, that's a good thing. It sounds really innocent.
2: Yes, of course, yes. Yeah? Yes, exactly. Clean water and other such things, who could be against it? But, as always, the devil is in the details. So you have to start looking at specific, um, specific parts of the, uh, the goals in order to understand where things are heading. And again, I think, again, this isn't a uh, conspiracy. This is out in the open. So if you look at the goals, for example, goal 16.9, um, it says that by 2030, uh, the SDGs will provide legal identity for all including birth registration and the idea here is that identity is a human right we need uh, we need to be able to prove who we are so that we can for example access government services and welfare and things like that and make sure that we're all being taken care of by public health systems so identity is a human right so we're going to provide legal identity for all including birth registration registration yay but what does that mean? How is that enacted? What does that look like? And we can get an idea of what that looks like through programs that are already in operation, already being pioneered, already worked on. For example, I think one that I keep going back to is the Adhar system, which was the incredible goal of uh, taking the iris scans and fingerprints of every single Indian citizen, one billion plus people, uh, and putting them in a database that could then be assigned to unique, uh, a unique identifier number, which would then be assigned to that person's identity so that they could be tracked and provided with government services as need be. Which again, at first glance, maybe maybe that sounds all right. Well, yes, okay, these, these undocumented people who never have received a birth registration record or anything, they have to be able to prove who they are so that they can receive government aid or things like this, access government services, so here we go and let's do it. I mean, we, are we going to give them some sort of card or something that they carry around and can lose very easily, or get stolen or something like that? No, 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 let's just make it so it's a iris scan. You can't lose your eyeballs, right? Well, maybe you can, but that would be a special case. Um, uh, uh, But, of course, what is the ultimate implication of this? Well, of course, then we start getting into the idea of biometrics and digital IDs, which, of course, ties perfectly in with this idea of this health pass, which, again, it's this cumbersome thing. I mean, at the very least, you got to carry it around on a smartphone. Why don't we just tie that into your biometric data so that when you get scanned, going into or leaving someplace, That will be automatically recorded and tied to your digital identity, which, oh, by the way, we could then tie into your central bank digital currency wallet. So, hey, in this wonderful, amazing future that we're stepping into, you could go into a store, just take what you want and leave. And as you go out, it'll scan your eye and it'll just automatically deduct it from your account. Oh, but, oh, actually, no, sorry, you're more than five kilometers away from your house. So, sorry, we're going to have to going to have to get the boys in blue to take you away to the, the prison. Uh, you, you violated the rules, citizen. Uh, but luckily, luckily enough, your future car, of course, will be self-driving, so it will just drive you to the prison. Uh, you, you won't have to drive there yourself. I, I, I hope that people who have some degree of imagination to understand what is being put in place right now is the infrastructure for the complete perfect technocratic prison of the future a not nation state a prison state of the future in which we are all guilty until proven innocent by providing our say our biometric data to the technocrats who will then decide whether or not we are allowed to participate in society and even if you believe even if you still in 2022 believe that every politician who is enacting this every big tech wizard who's steering, uh, bringing these systems online. All of the wonderful SDGs are totally benevolent and wonderful and only in our interest. Still, the idea that this infrastructure is there and could be, with the flip of a switch used by any tyrant in the future to completely and totally control the population in a way never before dreamed of, should send shivers down the spine of everyone who understands what is happening right now.
1: Yeah, it's truly Orwellian. If uh, people read the book in 1984, it's uh, quite scary. So, But what can people do uh, if they don't want this future? Is there any hope of escaping this type of society?
2: There is, yes, I think there is. And I think the first ground part of that, of of... Uh, escaping the system or or it, uh, I actually frame it in a different way because I don't think what it needs to happen is uh, a response to or a a fight against this infrastructure so much as the creation of an alternate system um, because people will not generally speaking people will not be persuaded to go along with some sort of movement to, overturn the world economic forum agenda whatever i don't know i don't understand that i think people will be persuaded by seeing communities that are able to not just not just survive but thrive and prosper by engaging in free interaction with each other unbounded by these restrictions so i think we need to do anything and everything we can to create communities That will be self-sufficient, at least to the uh, degree of being able to take care of each other while the rest of the world falls further and further into the prison police state. And the beginning of that, the very, very groundwork for that is at least activating people and getting them to understand the gravity of what we're facing now thankfully as i say as we sit here in early 2022 there are signs that the now the majority of the public is starting to understand the seriousness of this and the fact that oh this temporary health emergency is not going away it's not just disappearing overnight this is they're starting to put this in place for the future and potentially permanently as For example, in the United States, they're now preparing a permanent COVID-19 healthcare standard. Why do you need a permanent standard for this temporary emergency? It's because this is not about a a temporary emergency. This is about a long-term goal. So people are starting to understand that. We're starting to see things like the trucker convoy in Canada. Again, which uh, I'm sure there are nefarious actors that could be placed into situations like that, and it could be derailed in a number of ways. But... I know there are millions of people in Canada who are thinking about this and are starting to really question what is happening and why. And that really is the first step towards waking people up to the greater agenda. And then if they are interested in what to do to actually start creating these communities and how to grow them and what what can we do in order to counteract this agenda, I have a weekly podcast series called Solutions Watch where I'm trying to look at any and every idea out there for ways that we can go around the system build alternative structures uh form communities help each other um there's there's so many ideas out there but unfortunately a lot of people even in the independent media find themselves constantly focusing on what is being done to them and what oh you know the the bad people the uh, the elitists the conspirators are doing things to us rather than things what can we do that should be the the primary focus of our attention, so I'm trying to shift that attention, at least to the extent that I can do so in the independent media. I'm trying to shift some of that attention back to that question, what can we do?
1: And, and it seems like t- technology is a part of the trap, like we are walking around with a smartphone, uh, we are on Facebook, we are on YouTube, now they are censoring a lot of content, and is to remove yourself from technology, is that a solution as well?
2: That is a solution. Uh, I cannot say that that is the solution. Uh, because Precisely because I, I... Let's put it this way. To the extent that people can live today without modern technology, great, wonderful, do so, <laughs> please. That's great. Build up whatever whatever resources and, and infrastructure and community you need in order to sustain some sort of ability to live in the modern world without modern technology amish whatever great do it that's that is certainly a way of living i do not believe that the majority of people at this point are going to go along with that i and i don't think luddite movements in the past have been successful in ever actually dissuading people from adopting new technology so i i am less uh, optimistic than some about the ability to actually accomplish that. I think technological advancements have made it such that uh, people are probably not going to ultimately give up all technology. But certainly, at the very, very least, becoming conscious of the technology and how it is using us rather than we are using it, and it is shaping us into a certain type of person who acts and reacts and thinks and moves and and engages in transactions with people in certain ways and is limiting our ability to be natural human beings, to the extent that we can make that conscious, then we can consciously direct our intentional use of technology towards certain goals. Um, At any point at which we start... Simply adopting technology without thinking about it, what it is, why am I using it, what is, what is it being used for? If we stop uh, thinking about that, we essentially give up our humanity. And that more I mean that more and more literally as we step into that transhuman nightmare of the future. So... I, I think there is a place for technology, but we we definitely need a much, much bigger cultural conversation about what that place is and how technology can serve us rather than the other way around.
1: And like you have mentioned several times, there is a big movement now in um, Canada. And do you think we will see this all across the world the coming weeks?
2: It is Certainly possible. I certainly hope so. Courage is contagious, and the as people around the world see that other people, oh, other people are standing up, other people are doing things, that will encourage other people to do so. And as I say, I'm sure that this particular moment, this particular convoy can be derailed in any number of ways, but the point is not this particular thing on this particular day. It is the feeling, as I indicated, that people are getting, oh, Hey, look at this. For the first time in two years, I see people in mass standing up saying no, as saying they want freedom. I, I haven't seen this. I haven't felt this before. Here it is. And that's that's a moment that I hope will be contagious, and other people will grasp the significance of that. Rather than concentrating on the particulars of what this particular moment of time is about, it's about the idea in general. And... Uh, time will tell. Time will tell. But And there are many, many ways that this can be derailed or put into non-productive ways. But that's why we are here talking about it and trying to raise awareness on these issues. Oh, yes. I think there are a lot more people who are feeling this right now than uh, th- th- would believe. I, I, of course, given the nature of what I do, perhaps that self-selective feedback, but I hear that from people a lot. I feel like I'm the only person in my town or are the only person in in my community who knows about this, who thinks about these things. But often they are not. And it is moments like this where you can physically see that taking place. As I said earlier, that person in that town of 4,000 people, 1,000 people came out to cheer on the truckers. That that's a lot of people who, at the very least, I'm sure there are many different people, many different political ideas and persuasions and what have you, but at any rate, they agree on some fundamental principles that we do not want the government stewarding over and and barring us from our daily activities and these sorts of things. That is an empowering and exciting moment, and I think other people around the world once they start to see that and realize what is happening, will start acting in similar manner. This is not to say that this is the end of the story, not by any means, but it is a beginning to an end of this chapter of the story. It's a perhaps a never-ending story, but at any rate, uh, this is the eternal fight, uh, the eternal vigilance uh, that has to be paid for the, as the price for liberty and uh, we are seeing the next chapter of that being written right now and it is still an open question and this can of course be derailed and and put into I mean the Occupy Wall Street movement uh, back a decade decade plus ago seemed very electrifying at the time and very quickly became co-opted and and ultimately derailed and didn't really uh, achieve any of its main goals. Uh, That could certainly happen with something like this, so I'm not saying that this is the end. But at the very least, I hope people will be able to extract the idea of what is happening right now from this particular instantiation of that idea. Yes, this is what's happening in Canada right now, but it needs to start happening around the world. And I think people, once they start to see this, will feel empowered to stand up. And this is something I've talked about specifically. I hope people will check into my, rec- uh, my archives for something called the bystander effect. That goes to say that once somebody gets up there and starts doing something that might be seen as crazy by uh, average people, once someone starts following and doing that as well, Uh, It it becomes a social contagion and other people will join in until you have a mass movement. That is how mass movement starts. It starts with a crazy person doing something that is crazy. And why are you doing that? To other people starting to catch on until it becomes a mass movement. That is how it works. This is how human dynamics work. And this is something that I think the social engineers who want to keep humanity bottled up and contained and perfectly controlled do not quite get grasp in its full significance. Humanity cannot be controlled in the way that they want. It will not work, and people will start standing up. And this is what it starts to look like at first, and they will be mocked and ridiculed for standing up. But once they do so, and start doing so en masse, that will be an unstoppable tidal wave, at least for this round. And this is not, again, this is a multi-round boxing match. This is just one round of it. But at any rate, I think something exciting is happening, and I hope people will see this for what it is, see the forest for the trees.
1: Thank you very much for coming on Anti-Antiboden. We really appreciate your time.
2: I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
0: du önskar Anti-Antiboden, så can du göra det hjälp Sörkap Antijantepodden som betalningsmottager och vipps oss ett valfritt belö. Grundet personvärnsregler så ser vi telefonnummer till de som vipser oss. Så send oss gärna din e postadresse i meldingsfeltet, så får vi tacka dig personligt. Du kan också stötta oss ved att köpe boka Du skall lida för fällesskapet på antijanteboka.no. You
2: know I do speak Norwegian. Do you? Really? magen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's really good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's all I know.